This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Nineteen ninety four was the fiftieth anniversary of D Day. Throughout that year, we sat down with dozens of veterans of the Normandy invasion to hear their stories and to put these heroes of our nation on record. Owen B. Hill was a member of the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment. He liked to be called OB, and he was a sergeant in the headquarters company of the 1st Battalion. The 508th was one of four regiments of the 82nd Airborne Division. I had a memorable conversation with OB. He openly discussed his training and combat experiences, and he eloquently expressed his thoughts on the nature of war and what it did to him and his fellow paratroopers. I'm O.B. Hill from the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment uh, during World War II. We were attached to the 82nd Airborne through all the operations in Europe. During that period, what was your rank uh, during the D-Day discussion? I was a sergeant at that time, a battalion message center chief. First of all, we're going to talk about what uh, your arrival to England and uh, getting ready for this invasion. Uh, when did you get into uh, to camp in England? How did you get there? Uh, we landed, uh, when we first went overseas from New York, we landed in Ireland. And we were at Port Rush and Port Stewart Island for about 45 days. Then we went to England uh, through Scotland and rode the train down to Nottingham, England and uh, arrived there at the dead of the night, midnight, and everything blacked out, of course. Uh, and we were loaded into trucks and buses and taken to Wallaton Park, which was a very, very nice section of Nottingham. When, when was this? What time of year? It was in March of 1944. And you'd finished your uh, airborne training by then in the United States? And... Yes, uh, I had finished uh, jump school in September of 1942 and uh, from there I stayed at Fort Benning and went through communication school and uh, the first class of advanced communication school and then went through demolition school at Fort Benning and uh, then I was put uh, aside until the first battalion of the 508 finished jump school and I was transferred then to the 508. Now you get to England, what did you think England was going to be like? Did you have any anticipation, any thoughts? I had. Uh, very little knowledge of England other than what I'd seen in books during high school. Uh, back that time it was uh, unheard of for an ordinary family to be able to go to Europe. Here I am on an all-expense-paid trip. It <laughs> wasn't uh, all joy, but uh, I did have the opportunity to go. What was the troop transport like? Describe that for me, getting across there. The uh, transport going across, we were on a very small ship. There wasn't room for the whole regiment to get on there. There were 2,200 of us, and uh, part of the regiment had to be on another ship. And it was in December, and uh, crossing the Atlantic in December is not best at, uh, not good at, under any conditions. And our little small one, we were half underwater, I swore, half the way across. I think I got seasick the day I got on board, and I didn't get over it until I got to Ireland. In Ireland, there at Port Rush, we were uh, still training 
a very rigorous training every day and uh, many problems at night. Uh, we were out in the, I always call it the Thule's or the boondocks, uh, meaning that we're away from all civilization and out uh, on our own in the countryside. And in Ireland, uh, it's mostly, in that part of Ireland, it was mostly peat bogs. You step on the ground and go into your knees in the, in the peat bogs. So it was very rugged trying to cross the countryside. And what kind of training were you doing? What were you learning? Uh, we were given uh, uh, night problems uh, to uh, attack a certain spot on the map and uh, uh, simulate that we were in combat and uh, that we were trying to take this village or this uh, bridge or whatever the objective was for that night. And uh, during the, that time of the war, everything was blacked out, of course, even the cities. So uh, it was totally dark wherever we went. Did you do much jumping at all once you were in country? We didn't make any jumps in Ireland at all. We did make two night jumps in uh, in England. Okay. Uh, not everyone made the second jump in England because uh, somehow or other the uh, Germans had interfered with the radio communications and some of them the jump was called off. The others of us who jumped, we were many miles from where we were supposed to be when we landed. Hmm. So let's go down to England now. How you you got into uh, to Nottingham area? Yes, to Nottingham. Uh, as I said, then we moved to Walton Park, which is a very big uh, open area in uh, right at the edge of the city of Nottingham. And Walton Hall, we everybody of us in our group thought it was a castle because it's a big monstrous building. But uh, the Britishers tell us that's Walton Hall, not a castle. But it's a beautiful place. It sits right on top of the hill where we were. Now, were you staying with English families or in these fancy halls or in tents or? We uh, rarely ever got in that fancy hall. That was a, a museum, and uh, very few of us even went in there even when we had time. Uh, we were in Tent City. Uh, tents spread all around in front of the Walton Hall on the hillside, uh, the 1st Battalion, 2nd and 3rd and Regimental Headquarters. Uh, we even had a, a guardhouse, which was a tent in that area. Did you and, get to meet many of the English people? Yes. Uh, I always say we were the luckiest of all the troops that got sent to England. Uh, the city of Nottingham was absolutely fantastic. The people there were just friendly no matter what we did. As, uh, many times and since the war I've said that we were a loud, boisterous, obnoxious bunch. Uh, we'd go into the pubs and drink up all their booze in the 30 minutes that they had allotted for all day. Uh, we yelled at their women. We just made noise and were absolutely obnoxious in my opinion. Uh, but the Britishers accepted us. Uh, we were invited into their homes and uh, it became a very, very nice way of life. It was our, our first time to be stationed any place like that where we could mingle with the citizens and it was a very good experience. As I said, the British people were just overly nice to us. Hmm. There was one family called, their name was Anderson. They, he was in the Canadian Army during World War I and they, he stayed in England. And uh, I met them in a pub, and they invited me to their home, and uh, became very good friends with them. And I would liberate some things from the mess hall, uh, ham and some fruit, uh, flour and sugar, things that they couldn't get normally, and uh, take that to Mom Anderson. And uh, I had apple pie occasionally, and uh, had baked ham, had meals like, the, like my mother used to make. And many of the guys did the same thing. It was, uh, it was just normal that the British people took us into their homes. 
these people had been in 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 war and been under the uh, the difficulties associated with war for many years already. What? Uh, why do you think they were so open? The British people, uh, you have to be around them a while to uh, really understand them. They're a different breed. They are very rugged. Uh, all of the rigors that they had during the four years of war that they had before we got there didn't seem to have any effect on them at all. Uh, they referred to the battle at Dunkirk as a little skirmish, and that'll give you some idea of what the, what their feelings were. Uh, they just never did get their spirits down. They were always up, and uh, they always knew in their own hearts that this was all going to come out for the best when it was over. Did it seem like there were more Americans in England than there were in America? I mean, did it seem like that? It sure did. Uh, on uh, downtown Nottingham on the weekend particularly, the streets were absolutely packed with uh, men from the 508, and the 507th Parachute Infantry was also stationed on the other side of Nottingham and they were downtown, and many of the Air Force men were downtown Nottingham. Uh, it was just like being at home if you walk down the streets because uh, we outnumbered the Britishers uh, four to one. Well, that must have made you feel pretty good, though, to get accepted that quickly by these people. It sure did. It, uh, I don't think anyone really got homesick as a result of that. It, uh, well, the Anderson family, I felt uh, they were my family when I was there. I could go to their house, I didn't have to knock on the door after the first two or three visits. I, I lived there. Was it unique to you, or do you think other guys had the same? Oh, I, many of the guys had the same experience with different families in different parts of the area there. Uh, there's a little town of Beeston, which was right behind our camp. Many of the uh, men went back there rather than going to downtown Nottingham, and uh, they had families there. Uh, when 12-year-old boy came there regularly and got laundry from the regimental headquarters crew. His mother did their laundry and sent it back to them all washed and ironed very neatly. And uh, they would give him items from the mess hall which they couldn't get at their family. What was, uh, what was a, a day in the life of the 508 for you? What was that like? Oh, it was up early in the morning, having reveille at six o'clock, and uh, back right straight to the mess hall for breakfast, and then calisthenics, and uh, we usually always had a problem of some sort during the day. If we were in camp, there was always a problem of some sort. Uh, by problem, I mean we were marched out into the field to, again, simulate taking a bridge or simulate taking a, a section of the forest, and uh, just, just staying in good physical condition, really, and learning uh, how to keep reading our compasses without any errors, uh, how to read maps, and uh, we would have uh, times when they we would divide ourselves up. Part of us would be the enemy and part of us would be the good guys, and uh, we would attack each other in the woods to simulate another battle. Did you have any idea what you were training for? Oh, we knew that we were training for an invasion somewhere. Uh, that's the very nature of the parachute troops, is to be uh, the first in, to be the invaders, and to go someplace uh, where you know you're going to be behind the enemy's lines. Uh, our regular problem was to uh, drop onto an area and secure uh, a series of bridges or a simulated airfield or something of this nature. Airfields were always a good problem because uh, 
if we landed someplace and secured an airfield, then they could bring in reinforcements easily by, by the cargo planes. So we simulated that problem regularly. But you knew that you were going to be going over the channel at some point. We knew we were going. We did not know where. Not until the last week. What did you think about when you thought about the Atlantic Wall, Fortress Europe? Sounds pretty intimidating. It, uh, it was uh, intimidating, and I'm sure that there were many anxious moments. I had some. I'm sure everybody did. But uh, like everybody else, I had faith in the guy next to me, and he had faith in me. We were all trained to the very nth degree. We couldn't have had any better training than we had. We had good equipment. We all had the right spirit, and uh, it was just going to take one hell of a good enemy to keep us from doing what we were supposed to. When you're getting closer and closer to what we have, what's become known as D-Day, when did you find out when to get ready? Uh, when did you learn that the invasion was going to take place, say, early June? When did you start to find these things uh, out? One Saturday night, uh, in the middle of the night, they loaded everybody up in trucks and took us to the uh, airfield. To We went to Folkingham base. Uh, that's where our tra troop transport command was. And then we found out where we were going. Up until then, we did not know. We had gone to the airfield before and to make jumps. And it was always uh, a secured thing. No one knew where we were going or what, what was going to happen. But this time, it was a different feeling. We knew in our own hearts that this was the, the real thing that there was no more playing around and no more solving problems in the woods. We were going to do the real thing this time. And it was a different feeling. Uh, I'm sure there were anxious moments, but I don't think anyone was really terrified. We were ready to go on the night of the 4th, but the weather conditions uh, called it off for one day, so we were postponed for one day. What did you do that night? Where did they birth you? What did you do? Uh, there was uh, there were no buildings on this uh, air airstrip where we were except for one big hangar building. Uh, we had tents that we lived in, and uh, this this hangar building uh, had a poker game going in one corner and a crap game going in another corner, and it had church services in another corner, and they were showing movies in in there all at the same time, and. Uh, Everybody was in good spirits. They were talking and laughing in, uh, in the poker games and the card games and the crap games. Uh, the movie, I'm, I'm sure, was good. I, I remember going to the movie, but I couldn't have told you what it was. But uh, one of our men swears he remembers what it was, Davy Jones, who was in my company. He said that the movie they showed that night was uh, The Littlest Angel with Margaret O'Brien. And as no one will, <laughs> will deny that that happened. Dave's the only one that remembers, I guess. So what was the, the mood seemed pretty good, though, huh? Yes, everyone was in good spirits. Uh, even in the church service, they, uh, there was no signs of any fear or any regrets that they had joined this outfit. They were there to do a job, and they were uh, ready to do it. They couldn't, couldn't have had any better spirit than what we had that night. Now you had the, the, the mission explained to you as some sort of a, a sand table or something. Tell me about yes, what your uh, objective was. The intelligence the... section uh, built these sand tables. I guess they were eight foot long and eight foot square probably. And uh, the, they had made the top of the sand table and scaled to what the land was where we were supposed to land. 
It showed the Meridoray River, which is uh, alongside Chef Dupont. It showed uh, the bridges where we were supposed to take them, and it showed the uh, the area of the countryside that we were supposed to secure and hold. And we studied that table every chance we had. We went in there to look at that table some more, and. Uh, I think every man in the unit was very familiar with what was to be on the ground where he landed. Before you left, did you write any last-minute letters home, anything, your wife? I wrote uh, letters fairly regularly uh, to, to my wife. I don't think I mentioned, I know I didn't mention anything about this because it was, uh, our letters were censored at that time and we were warned not to mention anything about where we were or what we were doing. It was just a normal friendly letter. After that one-day delay, Obi Hill and his fellow paratroopers boarded their transport aircraft on the evening of June 5, 1944. So you went in full battle gear, you were ready to go? Yes. We took everything with us. Uh, we had uh, access to all the ammunition and, and hand grenades or whatever we wanted. There was plenty of it there. All you could carry, you took. I carried my M1 rifle and I had a 45 uh, pistol and I had a lot of ammunition, a lot more than uh, was allotted amount, but there was lots of it there to take and I didn't see any reason to leave it there if I could carry it, so I took it. Uh, I had hand grenades, I had a gammon grenade, I had two gammon grenades, those are British grenades. I had a phosphorus grenade because I had some equipment that if I was captured I was supposed to destroy it, the code converter, I was going to destroy it with this phosphorus grenade. When I got into the plane, I couldn't climb the steps. I had to be pushed. I was too, had too much equipment on me. I couldn't take my reserve chute, for example. It wouldn't have done any good anyway, so I left it. I couldn't uh, take the Mae West, which was to keep us floating if we landed in the, in the channel. I had to leave that. I left my gas mask and filled the gas mask case full of cigarettes. Uh, but I took all the things that I thought was essential. So you're on this airfield, was it dark? It was still light. Uh, the night of the 5th when we loaded into the planes, this was, um, I'm guessing now, about 9 o'clock because we flew for uh, four hours before we got uh, together. All the planes got together, assembled in the proper order. And uh, so we were flying around when it was still daylight. And then uh, when they all got assembled, we went to the south and came back towards France uh, across the uh, Jersey Islands, and we started getting anti-aircraft fire from there, and then when we hit the coast of France there was a lot more anti-aircraft fire, and the clouds there caused us to uh, have to, that caused the pilots to spread out, and uh, consequently we were not dropped in a proper place. Uh, a few planes landed exactly where they were supposed to, but they were very few. Now you're flying over and you're about to jump out. What the what, what's the feeling that this is finally going to happen? What, what's going through your stomach? I don't think that anyone was uh, petrified with fear. They, was, uh, they were all anxious, of course. Uh, that many of them have said that was one jump they were happy to make because of all this flak coming up at the airplanes, and they didn't want to go down with the plane. Uh, but I don't think anyone was really terrified. They were, we'd been trained to expect this, and uh, I don't think anyone was really surprised. Did you guys do anything like, uh, I saw some films where people painted like war paint 
and stuff yes, like that? Yes, uh, we had used uh, burnt corks and blacked our faces and uh, to keep from being showing up so that at night so well. Now you, uh, what's the, the flight over? Is it too loud to talk inside or people? No, no, you can talk. You have to talk a little louder than normal, but you can talk to each other and without you, any problem. And what are you talking about? Oh, they, just not normal conversations, really. It wasn't uh, concerning the invasion or anything like that. They, they didn't talk about that. They avoided that topic, evidently. Everybody did. It was just a normal, friendly conversation. A lot of laughter, nervous laughter, but it was laughter nonetheless. When we, when we did jump, I looked down and I could see the river. I said, well, that's the Meridian River, I'm close. And uh, I landed, landed in the floodwaters. And it was only when I stood up, it was about this deep then, it's just above my waist. And uh, but on the way down, the Germans were shooting at me and they hit the gas mask that was on my side. And that spun me around. Uh, I don't know how high we were, not very high, because uh, it, it didn't take long to get to the ground. It seemed like forever with all these tracers coming up at you, but it, uh, it wasn't that high. And uh, they were still shooting at me when I hit the water. And when I stood up, they were shooting again. So I went back down and had just my nose and my head sticking out to try to breathe. So it, uh, it was a different experience. Was this, it was under dark, it was in dark, right? Yes, it was 1.25 in the morning. Okay. So you've jumped out and the tracers, they're shooting at you and you actually get hit in the gas mask and you yes. land. And yes. Are you are you disoriented? What What's happening? Do you know where no. you are? When I landed, I was uh, still sure that that was a Meridian River, I, or at least I thought it was. And uh, I knew which direction I had to go if that was the river, and I took off in that direction. Uh, found out later that I was going in the right direction, but I was about one of the few that did. Uh, the ones in my plane were all either on the other side of the river or in the river. And because uh, I was the last one out, I had traded places with uh, my platoon leader. Normally, I would have jumped behind the company commander as number two. And uh, the platoon leader and our company commander were very good friends. And uh, the platoon leader asked me if he would, if I would trade places with him. So I did. And I went to the, to the last one out instead of the second one out. I was number 17. That's how many were on the C-47? Yes. When we stood up to hook up, I couldn't uh, hook up my line, and the one in front of me couldn't either. There was only room for 15 of us with all of our equipment to get from the door back to the uh, cockpit of the airplane. So the two of us were up in there with the pilot, squeezed in there, and with the pilot and the co-pilot. And uh, then when they gave the uh, order to jump, as we went out, then we hooked up before we got to the door. Okay, now you're sailing and you're landing on French soil. Describe the uh, German resistance. Uh, what was that like? What were you up against? The shooting at me there in the water uh, continued for, I'm guessing again, I would say for uh, 10 to 15 minutes. It seemed like much longer, but I don't think it was. I think maybe 15 minutes was the maximum. And uh, they evidently assumed that they had gotten me because I didn't make any moves. And uh, when Everything quieted down. I waited uh, what I considered to be a appropriate amount of time, and I started moving towards the uh, shore, and uh, got to there without any uh, more problems. And I got my equipment assembled and all hooked on my belt, and so I could go ahead and take everything with me. And 
I started walking then in the direction that I thought should be going, and I heard noises coming from my left, so I stopped, and I laid down on the ground. And when I laid down, then I realized I was right by a ditch, and uh, I could hear this noise coming from my left, and it was people walking. I had no way of knowing whether it was our men or, or Germans, so I didn't make a sound. Uh, they passed right in front of me, and as they just got past me, one of them spoke to the other, and it was German. So I had uh, been within a padding distance. I could have patted them on the head, but I didn't, of course. I assumed that they could hear my heart beating, but I don't think they did. <laughs> uh, they passed, and uh, after I considered it was right around the time, I got up then and jumped this ditch and continued on the direction I started. And I was challenged uh, with the word of the day, which was flash, and I couldn't think of the password. I said, oh, shit. And <laughs> It was Bill Brown, one of my corporals, and uh, he laughed a bit, and we got together and compared notes, and both of us decided that we were going the right direction. He had been going the same way I was. So we continued on then in that, that vein, going on down in the direction that we were going, towards what we thought was uh, Chef DuPont. So Bill was his name? Bill Brown. Bill was the first uh, American you had seen so yes. far? Did you yes. feel kind of lonely until then? Yes. Yes, but that wasn't really unusual. Many of the jumps that we made in practice uh, at night, particularly, uh, we were dropped in the wrong place many, many times, so it wasn't unusual uh, to be alone for the first few minutes on the ground, and uh, especially here, since I had landed in the water and stayed there for a time, I figured, well, everybody who landed there where I had, if they landed on the dry ground, were already gone, and uh, that's probably true there were others in that area we found out later that uh, had landed in that same section. Mm -hmm. And tell me about this code word thing again. You're supposed to, someone challenge you? Oh, the word of the day was flash and I was supposed to say thunder and uh, I didn't. I said, <laughs> that's when I said, oh shit, and uh, Bill recognized my voice because I was his sergeant. And, and Okay, so good thing you recognized your voice. Yes. Then, huh? Uh, so then, what's, what was the story with the little crickets that everybody Oh, uh, the crickets, uh, I had, everybody had one. Uh, we were supposed to use those, if we heard a sound, we were supposed to click those crickets, and if it was a friendly man on the other end, he would click his back at us. And uh, some of them used those. I didn't use mine that night, uh, whether I forgot it or whether it just didn't, uh, the situation didn't arise, but uh, I never did use mine. But they worked. So it was in lieu of shouting out flash? Yes. Oh. Yes. And that was the word of the day? How did you find out about the word of the day? Did well, they gave you? us that when we left England. That was beat into our heads so that we wouldn't forget it. But uh, I did. <laughs> I wasn't alone, I found out, at one of our reunions because Colonel Mendez forgot it too. <laughs> so I was in good company because Mendez was one of our best officers. So you get together and then you, you head out from there with... Yes, we picked up, uh, I'm guessing now again, because I didn't keep count, but I would say nine or ten men, and we got to a crossroad and ran into a bunch of Germans there. We had a bit of a firefight, and we drove them off. Uh, I would, I'm guessing, too, that we were outnumbered probably three to one there, but uh, we either were had more spirit than they had or uh, were better trained or something because we drove them off. And we, we wiped out a few, and the rest of them ran. Uh, so we continued on then. 
and we picked up a few more strays along the road and uh, at another crossroad we ran into the Germans again not sure that it's the same group I'm sure that it wasn't because they were going the other way but uh, once again we had this firefight with them and we drove them off and then we got to a little town which we later found out to be Boozville and then we knew that we weren't on the Murderay River the river we had landed in was the Douve River and uh, we were off course, but we were still going in the right direction, but it was pure accident that we were. We got to Boozville, and there were some, some Americans on the other side of the road and behind the buildings at this town, and uh, Germans on both sides of us, to the right and to the left. So we had a bit of a firefight with the Germans, mostly on the right side of, of my crew, the left side from the other side of the road. And uh, we were able then to cross the road after we drove them off and get with the big group. And we had, uh, Ray Hummel and I both agreed it was 52 men at that time. And uh, we had men from the 504, or from the 504, they had the 505 and the 507, and some men from the 101st. Now the men from the 101st had been dropped probably 15 miles from where they were supposed to land, but they were there with us too. But all of us had had the same type of training, and we all had uh, equal amount of faith in the one to our right and left, no matter what unit he was from. Our training had been somewhat different, I'm sure, along the way, but it was all the same type. So we felt like we were a pretty, pretty good group. Those fights at the crossroads, that was your first time in your first experience with combat? Yes. Uh, first experience where I could uh, shoot back. I was shot at, of course, on the way down and after I got in the water, but this was the first time that I could really fight back. It was a different experience. I don't know that anyone was ever really ready for that, but uh, it was something we had to do. How did you react to it? Was it instinct, or how did you... We, I think we just all automatically did what we had been trained to do. Started uh, finding the enemy and shooting at them and uh, wiping out as many as we possibly could. Was it was it a confusing situation or was it clear to you, did it come very clear as to what... We didn't know, uh, of course, how many were there, but uh, we had no choice. They fired at us and uh, we had to defend ourselves. And uh, we were fortunate that there wasn't any real large group. It wasn't a division or anything. If they had been, they would have just run over us. But uh, as it was, uh, we were able to drive them off. And uh, it was uh, an experience I'll never forget. It's not normal to sit there and, uh, on the ground and shoot at somebody across the road. Hmm. I wasn't raised that way. I was trained that way in the Army, but uh, when that time came, my, my background came back too. We were not a really religious family, but we always went to church and we had uh, quite a strong faith and uh, that faith was there that day. In what way? What do you... I knew that it wasn't uh, the thing to do if you were in a normal situation, but this wasn't a normal situation. You either had to shoot them or they were going to shoot you. and. Uh, so you went ahead and did it. At that point, did you, did any of your, uh, had, you, had you lost any of your friends from your unit? Yes, on the, on the way down to where we got the, the group together, 
how we had lost four men in these two different firefights, and we lost one when we got down to where the other group was. So we had lost five by the, uh, I guess, 10 o'clock that morning. How did that affect you? What, what kind of... Uh, it's infuriating. You get uh, absolutely irate because uh, a couple of them were, were pretty good friends. And uh, you, you sort of lose control. You're not human. You get uh, to where you'd like to just jump up and wipe out the whole crew. You know you can't do that. You have to take your time and uh, do it methodically. But uh, you get so absolutely mad that you feel like jump, jumping up and, and running right at them. You can't do that. It's a good thing we were trained not to. <laughs> because I'm sure many, many of them had that same feeling. I'm normally a pretty peaceful character, and, uh, but when I get mad, I'm, I, I lose control. And uh, I had almost done it that day. I think that uh, it's had an effect on me ever since that day, yes. I'm not sure in what way. It's made me more uh, compassionate, I think. I'm uh, more considerate of others, I hope. Anyway, I, I think I am. I, uh, I try my best to see the other person's point of view before I react. I don't always do it, but I try to. And I, I still think back on those days regularly. It's been 50 years, and it still comes back. And the memory is very vivid. Seeing them, seeing the friends killed, yes. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. And seeing that, did did you yourself feel as though your time had come up? Did you feel in a situation where it was going to end for uh, you? I don't remember ever thinking that. I never had really had time to think that uh, my time was there. I was uh, thinking what I had to do next and uh, what was the best way to get rid of the of the enemy across the road. And uh, I don't think I ever worried about being killed at that time. There was a time uh, later that I, in one situation where I had some time to think, and uh, then I thought back at, uh, well, in my hometown there's this square and they put the, the names of all those who were killed in World War I up there on Memorial Day, and I could see my name up there as one of them from World War II on, on the next Memorial Day, and I thought of home, and uh, that when that happened, uh, Ray Hummel and I. Ray was uh, the ranking non-commissioned officer in our group. He was a staff sergeant and I was next in command as a sergeant. We had no officers and uh, we 
after we got across the road and all of us were together, uh, we wondered what was around us and we couldn't really tell from where we were, but these were two-story buildings in front alongside the road. So we decided that if we get up into the, one of those buildings, we could see what was around us from, from that point of view. So Ray and I shot the lock off of the back door, one of the houses, went up into the upstairs, and there were two big windows right alongside the road, and three uh, German tanks came down the road, and one of them stopped right in front of our house, right in front of where we were. They were French Renault tanks that the Germans had were using. And the turret opened, and this German stood up in the tank, and he's looking around to see what's going on. So I handed Ray a gammon grenade, took the cap off and handed it to him, and he dropped it right in front of this German inside the tank. Well, the tank was like an eggshell. It was out of action. And uh, uh, when that happened, of course, the other two tanks started looking around to see what blew up this other tank. They didn't know that we were up there. But we took off from that building and went out behind the building. And, and uh, then that's the time that I wondered, because I just knew those tanks were going to come back there. We had nothing to wipe them out with. If we didn't get above them so that we could throw a gammon grenade inside, we had no chance. But the tanks didn't know where the uh, explosive came from, and they took off, went on down the road. And uh, we were greatly relieved. But during the time that we were wondering what they were going to do, that's when I was thinking of this of monument there at my hometown. So of course I had some time to think. It doesn't pay to have time to think, you get depressed. So take us through the rest of the day. It's, uh, it's probably about midday by now, huh? Yes, it's, uh, by now it's right at noon. And uh, we uh, figured out where we were by talking to a couple of the Frenchmen there. We knew then that we were in Boozeville and across the river from a town called Boozeville La Bastille. This little village that we were in was Boozeville. And uh, we knew now that uh, Chef DuPont was straight ahead to our right across some causeways. So we started moving in that direction. And every time we would move from one hedgerow to the other, we were fired at from both ends by the Germans. We crossed uh, all of the hedgerows down to the next road, and we only lost one person in that operation. Had a couple of them wounded. But we got down to the next uh, crossroad, and every time we moved in any direction, they opened up with us with machine guns. So we couldn't uh, go. We were surrounded on two sides by the river, and uh, we couldn't go out that way because they were across the river and could see us. And uh, the other two sections was a road this way and a road this way. And there was a house at the corner of that crossroad. Uh, we got to that last hedgerow, and that's as far as we could go. And we stayed there five days. The Germans had that house, and we were firing at it, trying to get uh, rid of them so we could go on. And uh, in the middle of the afternoon, we heard an American voice yelling, stop shooting or they're going to kill us. Well, then we realized that they had prisoners over there, some of our men as prisoners. And uh, so we stopped firing for a while. And uh, after about an hour, and a, hour and a half, I would say, the, uh, they started shelling us with mortar shells. And uh, so we started firing back. But they had evidently moved the prisoners out of there by that time and taken them down the road somewhere else because we heard no more from, uh, from our prisoners. I, since that time, I met the gentleman who lived at that corner. He was a 14-year-old boy at that time. His name is Pierre Cotel. And uh, 
I thought that the prisoners were in the house, but the prisoners were laying on the, on the ground out in front of the house at the edge of the barn lot. And uh, that's, that's where they yelled at us from. Now, your, your objective was, was what exactly? Was to take the... Our objective was to uh, take that bridge at Booseville La Bastille, and it was already blowing up. Uh, it got blown up the evening or the first night, the second night of the June, the, the night of June the sixth. It got blown up, not the, not the night that we jumped, but the next night. And uh, so then we were going to move on to the town of Chef Dupont, which was another one of our objectives, but we couldn't get there. We stayed in that field for five days, and we were attacked many times uh, by the Germans during that five days, but they never did uh, drive us out of there. We made, uh, made our own code that we weren't going to give up. We were going to stay there regardless. And uh, Ray Hummel and I decided that. We were in the same hole. We dug foxholes there along the hedgerows. Uh, well, some of us on this hedgerow and some of them back here so that we were uh, some facing one way and some facing the other. And Ray and I had the road covered to our left. And uh, between he and I, we decided that we didn't want to give up. And we passed the word down the line, and no one wanted to give up. So we were determined to stay there. And we stayed for five days. We could hear uh, fighting all around us, uh, gunfire of all different kinds. And you can recognize the German rifles from the American rifles, uh, the automatic weapons particularly. And uh, they were getting closer to us coming across the causeway from the town of Chef Dupont. So we knew that. Uh, Things were looking better from that direction. At least we had some, some friendly people headed in our direction. And uh, the afternoon of the fifth day, we saw this uh, platoon of men from the 90th Division. And uh, the first words we heard was the sergeant yelling for him to bring up a bazooka. And uh, that's not exactly the way he asked for it, but that's what the message was. And uh, they were using that bazooka to drive the Germans out of that house, and they did. Uh, when he yelled, bring up that bazooka, all of us stood up and cheered. Well, of course, he thought we were all going to be shot on the spot <laughs> because we were right out in the open. But uh, at that point, we were so happy to see people that didn't really matter because we were out of ammunition. We had down to our last one or two clips, and we couldn't have made it much more. We wouldn't have made it that night. The uh, hedgerows were particularly difficult obstacle to overcome. Tell yes. me about fighting in those things. Those hedgerows, some of them were uh, six foot tall and they're six foot thick this way and uh, very difficult to go through. You have to go around them. If, in most places it would take a, well they did use bulldozers to, to knock holes in them, but uh, even a bulldozer had problems. Uh, an ordinary man with a, with a little trench knife had no chance of getting through there, not quickly. And, it, and you were fighting just from field to field, or yes. what was that like? Because from it was one hedgerow to the next. Hmm. It was very difficult. And the Germans were were good soldiers. They weren't. Uh, they weren't just a bunch of scouts trooped out there on a on a problem of some sort. They were they were good soldiers, and they had good equipment. Now, when did you have any idea what was happening on the beaches or anywhere else in this whole invasion at all? We knew that there was a lot of firing going on, but we had no way of knowing what was going on or who was winning what. We could tell that our uh, our gun sounds were getting closer to us, but uh, for the first day, 
it was just uh, utter confusion. And I guess the feeling that all of us had there in that field was just pure frustration because we were, there weren't enough of us to overrun the Germans there on this, this crossroad, and we didn't have the right kind of equipment. If we could, have, if we could have had access to the equipment bundles and gotten some uh, some bigger guns, if we could have had a couple of machine guns and a mortar or two, and maybe a BAR, we could we could have really done some good. But uh, we did all right with what we had, but we could have done a lot better. We could have kept going, I think, if we'd had more equipment. But that those bundles were lost in the, the yes. drop in the water. Yes. Now, what? Uh, when did you find out? When did you feel like, uh, gee, this invasion might have worked? Uh, did you ever? When did you get that sense? Uh, when I realized that they were getting closer to where we were, then I knew that it was working. And that I, was, I felt that it was anyway. And that was when about? It was about the third day, and I could tell that they were getting closer. It's a little bit of a relief there. Uh, yes, but they weren't close enough yet to, for me to feel really secure. When did that come? When? On the on the fourth day, I, I guess, because then I could tell that they were very close. And they were in the town of Chef du Pont that day, and coming in our direction. Now, did you go through uh, San Mariglis in any way? Uh, I didn't go through there until the night of June the 13th. I got wounded and was hauled back through there in an ambulance. So <laughs> oh, okay. That's, that was my only time through St. Mary Glees during the war. Let's talk about your... Uh, the uh, the fighting uh, mid part of June where you got wounded. What were those circumstances? Uh, we had uh, gotten back to the unit on the night of the 11th, and on the morning of the 13th, uh, we were to cross the Douve River back where I had been in this field, and uh, the first battalion went to the right, and the second battalion went to the left to uh, secure some more of the Norman Peninsula. And uh, before we got to the town of Croydon, I was in a building and uh, the building got hit by an 88 shell and uh, blew me out of it. I didn't get uh, very little shrapnel. I got a lot of rocks from the wall that stuck in my back, but uh, very little shrapnel, but I was really banged up. I didn't realize it, but uh, I didn't know it really until 1950 when I got home. I'd been home five years and my left arm went completely numb and uh, went to the VA hospital and found out my neck had been broken and that's when it had to have happened. And because my arm didn't work right after that from then on. So all that time you had a yeah. fractured neck, gee. So then uh, you had just been fighting small engagements throughout that period, yes. the landing and, and... The Germans were pretty much on the run by that time. They had, there was a lot of uh, stiff resistance here and there, but only just a, a few to slow us down. Now let's talk about you returned, Sam Eric Lee's probably went back to England and... Yes, I went back to the beach and I was there overnight and back to England the next day. Fiftieth anniversary coming up. Yes. What, what do you think is being celebrated or commemorated? How do you characterize this reunion? It's just a, a landmark. Uh, Fifty years is a long time, and uh, the peace has lasted that, that length of time. Uh, 
and I think that there are probably uh, many reasons that they're doing this. The, the main reason is to uh, recognize the fact that the, the world put down someone like Adolf Hitler in his uh, efforts to take over the world. Hill remarked how they had climbed into those transport planes as innocent young boys and were then forced to grow up in one night. Hill and his friends brought home more than just memories. They carried lifelong scars, the kind you don't necessarily see on the body. Combat had changed them all. Would you, would, would you remember about those guys that didn't make it? Like, what do you think about them? I think of them quite frequently. Uh, well, in, in Normandy, for example, my battalion commander, my company commander, my first sergeant, and uh, many, many from my platoon were wiped out, killed. And uh, I often wonder what would have uh, happened to uh, Martin Joseph Tehan, for example. He was a very likable young fellow from New York. Uh, always happy, always singing, and uh, very intelligent. And he was killed about the first day. And I always wondered what would have happened to Marty if he had lived through all that. And Captain Ruddy, my company commander, was, I guess, the finest gentleman I ever met in the Army. He was uh, an old Army man uh, who would, any of his men would have followed him anywhere, and he got killed the first day. Um, we didn't get really get to know our battalion commander that went to Normandy with us because he had just been transferred in, but uh, he just barely got on the ground and was killed the first day. Uh, my platoon leader, who traded places with me, got shot through the stomach and captured the first day. Uh, I still think I saw him this month, or earlier, well, I saw him last month in March, uh, at a company reunion. And I, every time I see him, I thank him for trading places with me because uh, he's got that extra hole in his stomach and he's got a lot of problems that I don't have. But I, I often think of the men. At church during silent prayer time, I uh, I always offer a silent prayer for them. Do you think it was worth it? Well, if we hadn't have done it, uh, life wouldn't be the same here now, because uh, the Germans would have taken over this part, just as they did in Europe. So I guess it was worth it. You see all their faces in those big company pictures, the photos of the group together, and what do you see in their faces, in their eyes? Oh, I remember all the, the happy times we had. We had a lot of good times, a lot of fun, before the really invasion. And uh, I think back at those times and uh, have a few laughs. When we all get together, we still compare notes. Like uh, last year, for example, at our company reunion, one of the guys showed up for the first time, and uh, I told him in the in the room there that John Crouch was uh, coming. And one of the guys says, "Oh, I borrowed a pound from him in England, and I still owe it to him." And we didn't realize that a pound was worth four dollars and twelve cents at that time. So before John got to the room, this guy had his four dollars and twelve cents out, and he gave it to John. And says, "Now we're even. Quit dunning me." Well, he had never seen him in forty years. <laughs> But uh, John took the four dollars and twelve cents home and framed it. So we get many things like that. Mm. 
But it's, uh, I refer to them as my family. They're closer than family, really. It makes you appreciate life more, that's for sure. And it makes you appreciate the friends that you have more. Uh, hopefully it uh, makes you a better person. I hope it did. They gave up uh, their most precious gift, their life, for their country. They were, well, when we go back over there, the, the French, for example, refer to us as heroes, but we're not the heroes. The heroes are laying there in St. Lawrence Cemetery. I'm not at all sure why I was spared. Uh, I've said many times that uh, God was looking after me. He had something else in mind for me. I don't know what. I hope that I've done some good in my lifetime and uh, enough good to make it all worthwhile. But uh, someone was watching after me. It wasn't my time. What would you say to the to the to your enemy, your former enemy, the guys who are on the other side of those hedgerows, if you could see him today? I've met some, and uh, it's a strange feeling to meet the first one. But after that, you, I realized that uh, they were just doing their job the same as I was, and. Uh, I survived because maybe I was better trained than they were, or I was more fortunate than they were. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. They were, they were good soldiers. Their cause was not good. They, the reason that they were there was not good, but they were doing the same thing for their country that I was doing for mine, and they thought, I'm sure, that it was the right thing to do. Not all of them thought that because we had some who were glad to give up, but uh, they lost a lot of good men just as we did. They lost more than we did. And in fact, at times uh, we've gone there and put uh, a wreath in the German cemetery. They were good soldiers. Uh, those people who were out there fighting us uh, were just like we were. They weren't uh, the ones that caused all of it. The ones that caused it were uh, Adolf Hitler and his henchmen. There's no place for them, but they're going to be around forever. It looks like we're destined to have someone like that in the world no matter what's going on. They're not happy with things as they are. They've got to have more power, they've got to have more of this and more of that. What do you think about when you see a paratrooper, when you're on the ground, you see a guy jumping from a plane, you want to be up there with him? It's, uh, it's a good feeling. I go regularly to Fort Benning every year and watch the graduating class make their last jump. And uh, it's a good feeling. If, if I think if things were different, if my neck hadn't been broken, and didn't have so many other problems, I probably would be trying to make it again. I would, uh, I would be glad to go with them, yes. It'd be a different, different experience. It just proves that you, once you're an idiot, you never get over it, I guess. After the war, O.B. Hill went to college at the University of Evansville in Indiana and got his degree in accounting. He landed a job at Hughes Aircraft in Southern California where he worked until his retirement in 1986. Years earlier, he had founded the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment Association and spent a lot of his retirement organizing reunions and ensuring that the memories and accomplishments of his fellow paratroopers wouldn't be forgotten. O.B. Hill passed away in June 2002. Margaret, his wife of 62 years, was at his side. 
today in Normandy, there is a big stone memorial dedicated to O.B. Hill and a street named for him in Chef Dupont. We thank him for his gallant service and for sharing his story with us. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.